see now it's recording. Is it? Yeah, it's really uh, it's a super machine. It's only failing is that it picks up uh, it picks up the uh, you know sirens going by outside just as well as it picks us us up. But otherwise, it's um, not a very discriminating machine. No, it's not. It's sort of a, it's sort of like setting uh, the exposure automatically on a camera. It's right a lot of the time, and uh, the rest of the time it's way off. Yeah. Um, So, um, let me uh, begin, like I was saying yesterday, talking about your life before you got into the, uh, the gallery business itself um, somewhat. Uh, now, you were, you were born in New Britain, Connecticut? That's right. Um, some of this is just from the other interview. But right. <laughs> and uh, when, when were you born? Let's start there. Huh. In 1926. And I'm just curious if you could, you know, sort of characterize what your family uh, was like a little bit. Just give some, some sense of, uh, like, what was your father's occupation, for example? Well, my father and mother were immigrants from Poland. They came into this country before uh, the First World War, about 1913, I believe. Mm -hmm. And they settled first in uh, a small town in Connecticut uh, called uh, Deep River. That's where my two older brothers and my older sister were born. And uh, well, they lived there until my sister was about five, I believe. And at that time, my father was working out on the farms because this was at that time, farming country. Mm -hmm. And about uh, 1925, I believe, or so, or perhaps earlier than that, I just, I certainly can't remember. Yeah, right. Uh, they came to New Britain. And New Britain is a somewhat more industrial area? New Britain is a, uh, at that time, it built itself as the hardware city of the world. <laughs> Producing the kind of goods you find in a hardware store is being the idea? Well, the largest uh, would be the Stanley Works. The, oh, Stanley, yeah, of course. And uh, the Stanley tools and right. Stanley hardware doorknobs and hinges and all that sort Little of stuff. Little knick-knack, bric-a-brac hardware right, type thing. Not really bric-a-brac, isn't it? No, but I mean fixtures and fasteners. And sure, yeah. Yeah. And uh, there was also... Uh, company called the American Hardware Company. They were more or less in the same business. And uh, my father worked for them. He went into the factories and he worked for them for a number of years until, uh, well, until the Depression. And then he uh, was laid off for a while. Um, and we went on uh, what would be considered welfare. And by that time there were five kids. Mm -hmm. I was born in 26. My youngest brother came two years after me. And you say you're the fourth of five children? I'm the fourth of five. Just yeah. for the record, what was your father's and mother's name? My father's name was John. My mother's name was Anna. And is Seambab the original form of the name? Seambab is the original form. Not been changed or altered, in so far as I know. But uh, well, the, the depression years were very rough for all of us. Uh, by that time, my uh, older brothers were. Uh, let's see. Old enough, and they went out to work. And. Uh, well, so that uh, it was that way until about uh, uh, the pre-Second War, around the late 30s. When things began to pick up prior to the war? Well, bit. when things began to pick up, my older brothers, uh, they became old enough, and I think that at that time it was 18 years old, or perhaps it was 16. They went into what was called the um, Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC. Right. Sure. Uh, my oldest brother was in conservation camp in Rhode Island. My second oldest brother went out west. 
out to Colorado and Montana, places like that. Um, my oldest brother didn't care too much for the Corps. I think he stayed no more than uh, a year. And then he went off to uh, the school. He, in fact, he put himself through some school. I think he went into engineering or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. Well, my, uh, my brother, Lou, who was the second, older, the second oldest, he loved the court. He loved being out west. And he stayed there until he was drafted into the army about 1940. Yeah. Uh, so so, uh, by the time I was five or six, he was out of the house. He was already out of the house. Yeah. And my brother Lou was uh, born shortly thereafter. So I don't have too much memory of them. Although I must say that, uh, uh, in terms of the family life, even though we had uh, our financial problems, the uh, the atmosphere was uh, one of more or less loving relationships. Um, I don't think that uh, when we were children we made too many demands on our parents because somehow we understood the situation and understood the hardships that they had to go through. And I think they in turn uh, um, reciprocated our understanding with uh, with love and the closeness that, uh, uh, I mean, I appreciate to this day. This mm -hmm. was especially true of my father. I had uh, tremendous, tremendously warm feelings for him. I respected him greatly. He was, in a sense, a, uh, um, well, I would suppose you would call him a community leader, even though he didn't participate in anything, any kind of formal political structure. But certainly within the, uh, our immediate Polish community, uh, people with problems, people who needed some kind of advice, would, I recall, would uh, come to him and, uh, uh, well, he would give very freely of whatever. Sort of counsel, almost. Or, a what? Uh, like a counsel for people or uh, Well, in a very informal way. Yeah. Someone that, whose opinion would be sought for uh, aid, uh, and who would give it, and it would be worthwhile to them, kind of a thing. Right. And uh, he, uh, he was very handy with his hands. He was uh, creative in his own uh, way. Uh, he made uh, some of the furniture we lived with. He uh, made uh, decorations for church fairs and bazaars and things of that nature. My mother also was rather handy with her hands, too. She was a very good seamstress. Uh, she was good at, uh, uh, at paper craft, which uh, I understand now is uh, a rather popular folk art, a Polish folk art. Mm. But she was rather good in uh, making paper designs and things of that nature. So. And I suspect if I have any kind of artistic Streak, it probably comes from, probably from those, those genes that, uh, that that they had, you see, or that they gave me. What uh, was was English spoken in your home? No. Polish? No, Polish was the was language. Did your parents have problems learning English, or...? Uh, well, they never really had to. They lived within a community where they were able to... Well, yes. Uh, my father learned English because he had to go out more or less and, you know, to work. So he had to have a knowledge of the language. My mother, though, who uh, remained at home to take care of the children, she, uh, I think she learned uh, enough of the language, of the English language, to... Uh, uh, to shop or to get Well, not to shop, because she didn't even have to have that. She didn't have English, but she knew enough English to get her naturalization papers. Ah. Because they eventually 
they also became naturalized citizens, um, even though they had uh, they had uh, brothers and sisters and aunts and cousins from the old country. But the chances of uh, their returning was certainly after the war was just it was impossible. So uh, no, we lived in a rather what would be called a ghetto community. Mm -hmm. and we had shops were in Polish, the churches were in Polish, and we had Polish newspapers, everything. Mm -hmm. We had schools. In fact, I went to all of us, all of the kids in my family. We went to a, uh, a Polish uh, school. Was this a church-run school? This was a church. Was that a Catholic church? It was a Catholic church school. We had priests and nuns for teachers at that time. And uh, even though the schools are still functioning now, uh, the uh, I understand that uh, most of the teachers are now lay people, not the uh, clergy, yeah, not the clergy, not the sisters. Yeah. Was the instruction in English? Uh, very little of it. Hmm. So it was really a Polish school. Uh, it was a Polish school, and it was a large one. In fact, probably one of the largest in the city of New Britain. Uh, and uh, even in terms of the physical plant, it was uh, so there are actually two huge buildings hmm. with swimming pools, bowling alleys, gymnasiums, auditoriums. Uh, wow. uh, so it was a good school. And even though the education was in Polish, it was a good education. Um, and uh, all the other kids in my family went through the whole school system. They graduated. I did not. I left after the sixth grade. I. I mean, the rest of them had gone through the uh, the high school years. Well, at that time they didn't have they they went only up to the ninth grade, I believe, and then from that point they went on to the public high schools. But at after the sixth grade, I rebelled against the whole system. I was fed up with uh, the Polish language, with the uh, religious instruction, and I somehow knew that there was something outside of the Polish community. Yeah. That uh, had more to offer. Did you see um, English language newspapers yourself, or what? what oh, sure, we had. What, English con what kinds of contacts did you have outside of the Polish community? Well, we, even though, as I say, we lived in a predominantly Polish community, a Polish neighborhood, we had uh, Italian neighbors. Why don't you shut that window, if you will? Oh, okay, yeah, good idea. You'd have to. It's rather difficult. You have to use both hands. There. It was a sort of a mixed area. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I suppose the, my uh, knowledge of the English language, uh, even though it began on a very basic level in the Polish schools, but I got an awful lot of it off the streets. And, uh, uh, so that, uh, as, as you can see, the mixture of that, those two sources was, wasn't especially a, the greatest source of fundamental yeah. grammar or whatever. Right. Well, you know, of course, a, a classic second-generation immigrant, you know, sort of a thing is is a rejection of the old language and. Uh, the whole culture and you know wanting to be completely assimilated immediately mm -hmm. um was this kind of an element in your feeling do you oh, think absolutely uh, definitely there's no question about it uh it was certainly a rebellion against uh, everything that was around me uh, i've always wondered why that was so well, the other children in my family certainly didn't feel that way and there are many other kids in the neighborhood who didn't feel that way they were accepted it without question. Hmm. Uh, apparently, that, uh, what was provided for them was filled with whatever needs they had at, at that age. And, but uh, for me, I felt a greater need. I somehow understood that there was something, something what I don't know, but there was something beyond that constricting neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I just had to find out. So when you finished the sixth grade, just to place us in time, it would have been about um, 19, uh, 1937, around in there. So there was a 
about that time. There was a lot of ferment in the world abroad at this point, anyway, oh, sure. to, to make you aware of a larger kind of horizon. Oh, sure. Well, that's, this is one thing that we always kept up with the current things, uh, with the current situations, especially uh, the European things, because uh, because my, my both my parents came from, from Central Europe. They were very much involved with the political machinations that were going on at that time, especially with the rise of Hitler and uh, with his uh, probing towards uh, the Sudetenland, towards, uh, you know, towards Alsace-Lorraine and towards, uh, especially towards Poland. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, uh, well, we did have a radio, and, uh, which was, which was an interesting, uh, sort of an instrument for a child growing up at that time. Because even through the radio, most of what we heard was in Polish. Oh, really? You see. But uh, obviously we also had things in English. And uh, in fact, uh, it was one of those uh, shortwave combination AM radios. And I remember sitting up at night and listening to uh, getting called, you know, hearing broadcasts from Rome and London and things of that kind, you see. Mm -hmm. Which, uh, even though I didn't understand what the hell was going on, it was still fascinating. Right, yeah, magic almost. And I suppose this is one of, one of the things that might have uh, intrigued me was the idea that there was indeed something beyond my immediate neighborhood. Yeah, these, literally these waves coming out of the ether. Well, I, <laughs> I didn't understand the principle of radio waves at the time, but in any case, there was someone on the other end talking, and I knew that London was a great deal from great distance away, and Rome yeah. was even further, so that, uh, uh, you know, there was this strangeness, in London, mm -hmm. and I was almost compelled to find out what the strangeness was about. In terms of, uh, well, were, were there other magazines, um, did your, I'm wondering, like, um, in terms of pictures you might have seen, and that kind of, in terms of a visual kind of stimulus uh, at this point, were there women's magazines that your mother got, or no. would those have been English? She wouldn't have gotten them. Or no, no. We. Uh, or what kind of pictures were on the wall? No. We didn't have pictures on the wall except religious pictures. We didn't have too many of those either. The only pictures I remember would be the ones from the uh, newspapers. Uh, we did. We did subscribe to the local English paper, the New Britain Herald. We did get uh, two or three. Uh, Polish language newspapers. Uh, published in the community? One of them was published in the community. Another one was nationwide. Uh, magazines, I really don't. Uh, Wouldn't have gotten Life magazine when it's. Well, started. now, interesting that you should ask that question because I do remember the first issue of Life coming out. And uh, even though I don't remember the uh, the specifics of that, but I do recall that shortly thereafter there was one issue of Life magazine that came out which uh, showed natural birth. Now I don't know, I don't remember exactly what year that would have been, but I... Pretty early, I, I recall something about I it. remember that issue mm. because it caused such a fantastic controversy. Sort of a shocking shock to the middle class value. Uh, otherwise, well, remember we weren't middle class; we were well, lower I mean, middle class. Culturally, Not only that, I mean. we were. Uh, it was a fan, almost a fanatical religious community. Catholicism, the, the way it was practiced in New Britain, was almost of a fanatical nature. And uh, uh, even though the mayor of the city was supposedly the, the head of the city, the action, in fact, uh, the head of the city was the parish priest. Huh. You see. In fact, he had more power than the mayor. So, uh, I mean, it was not unusual to go to uh, uh, church on Sunday and have uh, movies damned, certain movies banned, magazines, I mean, proscribed that uh, this is not for Catholics to read or Catholics to see. Uh -huh. And that had a hell of a lot of power in those days. And those things were just unavailable in the Catholic community after that? Well, after that, certainly. Yeah. But, uh, no, my uh, uh, 
and the pictures that I recall would come from school textbooks too. Uh, the emphasis in those days was on history, on geography. A lot of it had to do with Polish history. So I, some of my earliest pictures were of, uh, or, it, or some of my earliest memories of pictures were of, uh, of the, uh, uh, what the hell were they called, the Cossacks, I suppose. Uh, although that supposedly relates to, uh, to the Russian cavalry. But the Polish cavalry was just as, you know, brilliantly attired as the Russians were. Uh -huh. Hello there, how are you? My son Christopher. Well, hello. What's this? It's a box. For what? <laughs> Here, is your mother waiting for you? Mm -hmm. Hmm? What is that money for? This is for your mother, I want you to give it to her. Is that what you came for? What? Yeah. What? What's yeah. What's this here? The thanks for me. Who gave it to you? Hmm? Who gave it to you? Yeah, look, see. So, for example, your family would not have subscribed to Life Magazine, though you would have seen it around. Oh, no, no, no. No. Life Magazine, I believe, came out when I was already in the, in the uh, public school system. Okay, it's November of 36 was the very first issue, but that whole next year it was still pretty new. Um, so it would have been, yeah, just about that time. I thought it was 38. Well, whatever. Whatever. Uh, it might have been, but... Uh, no, in fact, it, it, it was 36 because my, my father was an undergraduate in college mm -hmm. and was a charter subscriber. He graduated in 38 and would have been out of college uh, in the fall of 38. So. Well, whatever. Yeah. Um, so that in terms of my picture experience from those days, it was really rather limited. It was limited to uh, the religious pictures in church, the religious pictures in school that came from our textbooks. Um, there might have been panoramas and geography books, uh, historical portraits of uh, mostly of the Polish patriots. Mm -hmm. And of course, of George Washington and Lincoln and things like that. So what were your personal interests in? Were you interested in, uh, in pictures at this point? Or what, or what? did you collect stuff? What kind of a background interest do you have at this point? Well, I was making pictures. And I was a rather, even at that young age, I was a, a rather precocious draftsman. Uh, my uh, teaching nuns would always more or less give me first prizes for drawing good pictures and things of that nature. Um, I do know that I had a fascination with uh, images at that time. But uh, I just recall uh, in the fifth or sixth grade, I think it was, of uh, drawing a picture of a four-masted schooner, you see, which hung up on a classroom wall for I don't know how long because it was, the teacher thought it was one of the best things that she'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was kind of peculiar at this time, but in any case. It'd be great to have that picture now. <laughs> well, <it's> hardly. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so even in that, in, in those early years, I do remember doing an awful lot of drawing. Um, and, uh, my uh, oldest brother, he also had a fascination with, uh, with the visual arts. He was rather good draftsman. And I remember one Christmas, he gave me a watercolor set, which fascinated me fantastically. And then uh, at a later Christmas, he gave me a, a movie projector machine, yeah. which was really far out. I mean, he gave me... <laughs> It, and it was one of these crank types, you see. Mm -hmm. And I think there was one roll of film, one movie came with it. And of course, we had, I didn't have money to buy others, so I just played that damn roll over and over and over again. And I can't even remember what hell it was, <laughs> surprisingly enough. It, 
Some little comedy probably. Yes, it was. I kind of come to think it was. I think it, it might have even been Charlie Chaplin. little piece of a Charlie Chaplin thing. Huh? Yeah, about three minutes long or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, which uh, made me an immediate hit in the whole neighborhood because no one, no, <laughs> none, none, I was, you know, the old saying, I was the first kid on the block who had a movie projector. Yeah, right. Uh, but... Uh, well, once I got into the public school system, then of course things changed. How how did they change? Uh? Well, it changed in the sense that the emphasis uh, uh, was no longer on religion, for example. It was no longer on Polish history. Uh, there was nothing Polish, in fact, except the names of some of my f- fellow students. And uh, so I had the immediate problem of of coping with the English language. And uh, it was indeed a problem. But uh, I had, uh, it seems to me that at that time, the teachers in the schools, in the public school system, were sympathetic. They understood somehow the situation. It would seem that in that community, if there was such a large Polish school Mm. system, that the public school teachers would have had to have been dealing constantly with people coming in from it. Well, there were, as I say, once I got into the school system, I, I understood that. I wasn't really the only rebel, you see. And of course, some of the uh, uh, kids weren't really rebels. Uh, the, the parents just felt that they ought to have an English language education, an American education, one, uh, r- rather one that emphasized the American culture rather than the old country culture. So uh, it, for me, it posed tremendous problems in terms of adjustment, but it was also a tremendous fascination in terms of because for the first time here was something tangible that I could grab a hold of that would, in a sense, take me away from that ghetto into the, into the larger world. It's almost like immigrating yourself in a cultural sense. Well, that's, I suppose that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And even though it meant, uh, uh, you know, a walk of about a mile, two miles to school, I mean, in terms of uh, the distance, it, it was indeed as if it, I was emigrating to a, a new country, to a new place. But, uh, so of course, once I got into the public school system, then there were books, there were magazines, uh, there were newspapers, there were films. Did you keep up with the drawing? Uh, were you still... Oh, sure, yeah. Still yes, uh, uh, acclaimed yeah. as the... Uh... Well, by that time, the competition, I think, got a bit keener. Uh-huh. There were others uh, who were equally as skillful, if that's the word for it. Uh, so that competition was keener. And uh, I was no longer the star draftsman of the class, you know. Did you have any thoughts about doing something with that, like even becoming a cartoonist on through becoming oh, a... Oh, absolutely, sure, because I was a cartoonist later on in high school for the high school paper. I was a cartoonist for the college paper. Because, you know, Henry Holmes Smith did a lot of this. I don't know if you have any... <laughs> I didn't know this before I got involved with him, but he was an extremely avid cartoonist. Yeah, well, he even I... had one published in the New Yorker eventually, a um, couple. Sure. And, uh, I have uh, made cartoons for uh, for my uh, army paper, uh, and, and I said for the high school paper and college paper as well. But that came later on. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you become involved in uh, sports? And not too much. In high school. No, I went out for the football team in high school, and. Uh, my father was very much against it. Even why I don't know because I was, a, I was as big then as I am now. Mm. In fact, I was bigger when mm-hmm. I was in high school. I weighed two hundred and thirty-five pounds, and I was almost six feet tall. I was a big fellow. But uh, <laughs> they put me in a line as either guard or tackle. I can't remember. And I, I think the first scrimmage or whatever it was, I, <laughs> I did something to both my ankles, and that ended my football oh. career. <laughs> So then I tried out the baseball, but I wasn't very good at that either. I was fairly good at hockey, at uh, at uh, tennis rather. I was a good ice skater, but at that time we didn't have the emphasis in hockey as we have now. Yeah. So uh, even though I was a good skater, we didn't have the little league hockey team or thing of that kind, you see. Mm-hmm. Um, so that uh, tennis was my summer sport and. Skating was my winter sport. Mm-hmm. 
So you're going through uh, the public high school system between about 37 well, no, and 43. Well, listen, this isn't the high school system. Oh, no? This, this began with the seventh grade. Oh, right, okay. Secondary school system. It, it was the, uh, it, uh, well, no, it was still the elementary school. From six to ninth grade was the elementary school, and then from the 10th to 12th, that was the secondary system. Oh, it's sort of a middle school, or junior high, what we well, call junior high school. The junior high. Junior high was from seven to, to uh, nine. Seven, eight, nine was the junior high. And then the 10, 11, 12 were the senior high. So, uh, well, it, it was truly a fascinating world for me then. Because one thing it also introduced me to was the public library. And now in New Britain, they had, and they still do have, a children's library which is fantastic for a community that size. And next door to the children's library was uh, the adult library. And on the second floor of the adult library, they had uh, exhibition space in which they showed, uh, in which they had arts and science exhibits. So that was probably my first formal introduction to uh, pictures, to paintings, for example. As a real exhibition. As, as, a, as, as paintings as art, rather. Not as propaganda, not as religious propaganda or political propaganda. Would these have been shows that they got that were circulated by... Well, some of them were probably part of the... the uh, AFA? No, 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 nothing of that nature. No. Nothing as grand as that, I don't imagine. Uh, but this, some of the exhibits were on permanent display. They, they were owned by the library. Uh, and I think that the others were probably made up of... Uh, works uh, made by local artists. Or was uh, it any of a WPA kind of stuff? Uh, uh, that I don't remember. I doubt very much because I don't know if they circulated WPA shows in those days. I do know that they had w the WPA artists working directly, making murals and post offices and things of that nature. Uh, but, uh, but in any case, the, the library to me was a fascination, an absolute fascination. And especially the children's library, and I think I've devoured every goddamn book in it. Mm -hmm. And one of the helpful things was Saturday mornings they had, uh, in wintertime especially. In the wintertime? Yeah, in Saturday mornings they had the children's story hour, all right? And so, uh, and I would go as often as I could to listen to the storytellers because it was. Uh, not only in terms of the, the, uh, the stories, but in terms of the total atmosphere of that library. It was a beautiful, at least to my childish eye, it was a beautiful structure, something I had never seen before. Mm -hmm. On both ends of the huge reading room were fireplaces, big fireplaces, and every winter's day they had fires in them, you see. So you could sit by the fire and you could read a book until they threw you out. And this is what I used to do. Mm -hmm. Then I'd bring home books from the library. Many of them were books and cartooning. Many of them were on art, because again, this is, I suppose, this too was my initial introduction to, to art. Would you have read magazines then regularly there also? Oh, sure. Like Life and maybe even uh, New Yorker or something like that? Not Life, but I would have read things like Saturday Evening Post, Collier's, uh, the Boy Scout magazines. Uh, whatever other ma magazines that were geared towards children. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I don't remember seeing life in that library, although I used to, when I would sneak into the adult's library, I suppose I might have seen it there, because they did have it there. But furthermore, and then later, years probably just as I entered high school, I also got to know the New Britain, the New Britain Museum, Art Museum. Uh, which at that time was, uh, and it still is, located in a private home, or what was a private home, and uh, reconstructed as a museum. And uh, even though the pictures were rather conservative by our standards, it was still an introduction to the world of art. And uh, from that point on, I suppose, it was my strongest desire to be an artist. Mm -hmm. Did you do um, 
well, I know that this is true of a lot of other people who end up in the arts. I'm just wondering, did you do either well or very poorly in what I'll call sort of technical courses or technical work in high school mathematics or uh, science courses? Did you find them a problem or uh, do you have no recollection one way or no, the other? No, I didn't have any problem with mathematics. I had some problems with physics. In fact, I flunked physics. That's a problem? Uh, that's a problem, yeah. No, I, I, I don't know if I, I can't even remember if I flunked it or not, but I had problems with physics. Yeah. And strangely enough, uh, those are really, that was really the only science course I ever had, was physics. I don't recall anything in chemistry or biology. Mm -hmm. I uh, was never strong on... Uh, frankly, I was never strong on formal education to begin with. Uh, and I used to rebel against incompetent teachers, which uh, now, as I you know, as I recall that, it seems kind of strange. You know, how how was I able to judge an incompetency in a teacher? But somehow, I just if I couldn't relate to the teacher, I just wouldn't do it. I just rebelled. Uh, my good fortune was that I had uh, several teachers who I was able to relate to on a very high level. One of them, two of them, were English teachers, and they helped me tremendously with the language to overcome that problem of, uh, of uh, well, for one grammatical structure, because the Polish grammar is entirely different from uh, the uh, English language. And uh, to become fluent in reading and writing it as well as oh right, English. reading, writing, talking, and uh, so that to them I'm most grateful. A woman by the name of Miss Koplowitz. Miss what? Koplowitz. How would you spell that? K-O-P-L-O-W-I-T-Z. Another one was uh, Miss Courier. Constance Courier. She, in fact, is a... Uh, well, she's a published poet. And she does have, uh, even to this day, she must be now in her 70s, or perhaps in her 80s. Even now to this day, she has uh, one of her poems occasionally in the New Yorker magazine. Huh. And uh, then there was Miss Coates, C-O-A-T-E-S. She was a social studies teacher. I got along rather well with her. She was, in fact, the advisor to the uh, school newspaper. And she was one who encouraged me to, uh, um, to make cartoons for the paper and also to write for the paper. Both of which you, you did. Oh, sure. So... Uh, uh, so in that sense, uh, I was able to relate to these people, and uh, because there was something more to them than just an automatic uh, exercises in teaching, for example, mm -hmm. they went beyond that. They truly wanted to help the young people, and especially the young people they recognized as having language problems, and we did have them. So, um, so did you get them pretty well under control by the time you left the high school? Well... I mean, basically? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, in fact, I, uh, I think I was in the top 10% of the high school. And uh, we had a very long... Um, in fact, I, uh, I think I was in the top 10% of the high school. And uh, we had a very large graduating class. I think it was over 800 kids mm -hmm. graduating from high school. What did your parents uh, think of all this? Were they more or less... Uh... Well, I think that uh, they were perplexed. My mother, for one, could not understand why I wanted to reject all the old values. My father, I think, was a bit more understanding. I think he understood the needs for my rebellion. And I think, in fact, he was sort of proud that I was able to accomplish some of the things that I did. Um, so that, I think for them, it was uh, just perplexing. Mm -hmm. They couldn't understand it, you see. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I think my mother was kind of sad about it. She was very strongly uh, rooted to the old country and to the old culture mm -hmm. and to the old religion. In fact, I think her fancy was that 
I would be a priest. Oh, right, the great. You know, because this is true of, uh, I suppose, uh, Irish as well as Polish, that at least one of the children is dedicated to God. Right, well... And, and, and in my family, I was it. Okay? Yeah. And that's the last thing that was in my mind. Uh-huh. <laughs> because when I left that, that Polish school at the, at the sixth grade, I also left the religion for all practical purposes. Did, did you actually, like, stop going to church, or that was oh, not... Oh, sure. You did? And oh, sure. I mean, I would wake up on Sunday morning and get dressed and ostensibly go to church, but I would <laughs> end up in a coffee shop with uh, the New York Times or something, you see. Uh, so, you mean, all during high school year and public school years, you were sort of... You're going through the motions for your family, sort of, but you had really... Naturally. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was leading a hypocritical life. There was no question yeah. about it. Because I was going to say, when you said you stopped going, I thought, my God, that must have created a horrible stir, but I well, see how you got around it now. That's... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I felt that I... Uh, I felt that I had upset them, uh, that I had upset them enough. Yeah. And... Uh, to actually flaunt in their faces the fact that I had left the church would would, would, would have killed my mother. Mm. So, during this time, as you're coming up to the last couple of years, in the, well, the senior high school years, um, war is imminent, and then in late 41, of course, Pearl Harbor, mm. while you're still in high school, and the war begins yeah. to... I mean, the war is on for the United States at this point and when you graduate. So did you graduate in 43? I graduated in 44. Class of 44? Yeah. And I immediately went into the Army. Were you drafted immediately or did yes. you apply immediately? Or oh, just... no, no, I was drafted. But there's one thing that just came to my mind. Sure. About my first camera. Ah, okay. All right. Now, I must have been perhaps 12 or 13 years old at the time. And in those days, they had some shrewd sales gimmicks, mm -hmm. which they used to ensnare children, mm -hmm. right, as salespeople, right? Right, sell the... One of them was to sell some kind of liniment or salve, you see. Right. And there was another <laughs> one with punch cards. You sell the punch cards, you know, uh, uh, and uh, if the buyer punched a certain number, for example, and hidden underneath was either a prize or a price, mm -hmm. right? For example, if you were... Uh, no, I think they had names, and under each name was a, was a perforation that you could punch out, and hidden in that perforation was uh, a number, and if you matched the number, you either got some kind of a chintzy prize, right. or you had to pay a nickel, a dime, or whatever. Uh -huh. And after you sold off the whole card, you collected something like eleven or twelve dollars, uh -huh. which I, the salesman, would send to the company, and they in turn would was they would send me my prize. Uh -huh. Okay. Well, the prize I was going easily for, worth two dollars. <laughs> right. So the prize I was going for was the camera. Not just the camera, but the whole goddamn development kit, a camera and, and chemicals and a roll, or maybe two of film. Mm -hmm. And some printing out paper. The whole dollar ninety-eight package right. of it. Right. <laughs> what was the camera? Do you recall? What? Do you recall what the camera was? I don't know. Some little box thing. Some kind of a chintzy box thing. Yeah. Boy, I got that, and I was overjoyed. So, did you start uh, doing the whole thing? I did. And in fact. Did you commandeer a bathroom for this purpose? No, uh, it wasn't a bathroom. I did it in the kitchen, at night. And uh, thank God it was the summer months because uh, we had uh, a big black iron range, a wood-burning range, which we used for heating. Yeah. So. Uh, black iron range. Or black something? iron range, which we used for cooking and heating the whole house. And. Uh, I mean, the instructor said you have to have a dark room, right? Uh huh. I pulled the shades down. Right. Put some loose papers on the black iron range, and that was my work table. Got out the chemicals, unrolled the film, and I just did it this way, you see. Just. Uh, what, whatever you call that sort of thing. Yeah. I, I don't know what the hell the technique is just called. Just dipping it in, yeah, holding the ends. 
holding the ends of the film and sliding it in and out of the chemical this way and that way. And sure enough, I got some kind of an image, even in that semi-dark room, because it wasn't totally dark, you know. It must have been a very slow film, obviously. Might have not even been panchromatic. Whatever. Yeah. I don't know. But, uh, uh, and then I printed, and then I made some pictures out of it. Uh, and then eventually the pictures faded. <laughs> it didn't include <laughs> these extra ingredients. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so, uh, no, but that was my first experience with photography. And uh, I think from that point on, it became part of my uh, tool bag of the art. And so even though I didn't uh, uh, do anything seriously with photography until I got into the service, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I never truly abandoned it or disregarded it for that matter. You were always sort of interested in it, aware it of it. It was part of it. it, it I think it was from that... I, I think it was because of that early production, anyway, for me, plus my interest in painting and sculpture, and my interest in literature, is that uh, uh, I never questioned uh, photography as an art form. I accepted it mm -hmm. because I mean it was it was a tool to make pictures, and so it wasn't there was there wasn't any question in my mind that photography was not an art form. So, uh, you never acquired the other bias, is what it boils down to. Hell no. Yeah. Uh, and probably, uh, because I, certainly not in those years, I never read art criticism. Yeah, if you'd have gone to an art school or been really in touch with the art community, you might have acquired that bias. Mm. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. Although I doubt it, because I certainly got enough of it later on. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, no one was really ever able to convince me that uh, photography wasn't an art form. Mm -hmm. so, uh, Okay, so when you uh, graduate, you're immediately drafted. I believe you said yes. you were in the ended up in the Fourth Armored Division. The Fourth Armored Division. Is that where you? That were? was in this, no, that was in Europe. That was later on. Well, that was when I was, after I got through basic training and went off to Europe. Uh, my basic training was at Fort Knox in Kentucky, mm -hmm. and uh, which was uh, an armored basic training. Uh, camp, and I was indeed in a basic training tank company, but I never had any instruction in tanks. Mm, what did you end up doing then? In basic training, I ended up being a motor section chief because <laughs> of my fantastic eyesight and because of my ability to judge distances. Mm -hmm. I got to a point where I could uh, hit the middle of a target with two shells. And on many occasions I would do it with one, which was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And so on the strength of that, immediately into my army records went the fact that I was excelled in mortar and I <coughs> had the specification of a mortar section chief. Mm -hmm. But, uh, <laughs> of course, uh, once I got overseas, I never saw a mortar. Yeah. No, no loss. <laughs> well, no loss. But uh, uh, because when I got to Europe, which was uh, probably uh, oh, I don't know either. Maybe it was February or March of 1945. Uh huh. Um, they didn't need mortar people. They needed tank people. And so on my record, it showed that I had driven a tank for 15 minutes at Fort Knox. Yeah. So I was immediately assigned to a tank company. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. And I spent the rest of my army days in a tank company. Were you actually, you were in a tank? I mean, that's what you did? Yeah. Huh. I uh, started off as an assistant gunner in a tank, and I ended up as a, as a patrol sergeant. So where did you, what did you do? Did you see a lot of action, or? Well, not a lot of it. Because by that time, I think I joined my outfit right after Bastogne. And uh, the 4th Armored Division was one of the outfits that helped to uh, liberate the uh, 
of the uh, troops in Bastogne. And uh, I believe that uh, it was shortly thereafter that I had joined the 35th Tank Battalion of the 4th Armored Division. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were assigned more or less to the rear echelon. Uh, fortunately for me, because this was a rest, you know, in a sense, to rest, to rest, to give the troops a rest. People who had been in this other relief right. operation. Right. Yeah. And uh, so then we uh, rolled uh, through southern France and through Bavaria and uh, had a few skirmishes in Bavaria. Nothing really very major. This was pretty well at the end of things. Yeah, this is pretty well at the end. And in fact, the worst day for me was uh, the last day of the war. Hmm. And because by that time we were preparing for a major, uh, for a major offensive. We were about uh, 35 miles outside of Prague and my company, we were uh, uh, a uh, reconnaissance tank company. And so we were the first ones to go out. And on that particular day, we went off to uh, guard a, uh, take over a, a crossroad. There were four tanks, one lieutenant in charge. And uh, we got there bright and early at daybreak, set up our positions, and waited for further instruction. You see. And then all of a sudden, down the road, we saw whole big bunch of uh, checks coming toward us. And uh, when we got, they got to our point, uh, since I was the only one who understood part of the Slavic language, you see, I acted as interpreter. And uh, there's no similarity between the Czech and Polish language, so that I was able to understand certain things. And one of the things that I got from them was that there was a great big German Panzer Corps coming towards us on that road. Mm. Right, and so there we were, four tanks, about to confront the Panzer Division. Mm -hmm. So, our lieutenant, poor boy that he was, he was uh, one of those 90-day wonders out of Cornell, I believe, mm -hmm. radioed back for instructions, and the instructions we got was to sit there and wait. So we waited, and sure enough, within oh, I don't know, probably around 8 o'clock in the morning, this German staff car is driving towards us, except that they're floating a white flag. Right? Huh. And what was happening is that the general of that Panzer Division was coming to us to surrender. Uh -huh. Because right behind him were the Russians. Uh -huh. And one thing that the Germans did not want to do was to surrender to the Russians. Right. Uh, yeah. So with great relief, we began to round up all these, all these, these uh, the German soldiers into more or less of a camp of disarming them, mm -hmm. and uh, for all practical purposes, the war was over for us. Mm. So uh, that was a a horrendous day. It was a happy day. It looked for a moment like there was really a well, it, because we weren't, we didn't know what the hell was happening. Which is why the word to sit tight probably came down, I suppose, well, although you didn't have any idea. <laughs> no, well, no, we didn't. God. Huh. So, uh, and I really don't know how many Germans we had under our care at that time. But they weren't about to start any kind of a fight. They were very happy to surrender. And uh, I think it was only a few days afterwards that the surrender finally officially came through. Yeah. But in the meantime, uh, my small outfit was reinforced with more troops, more of our own troops, to guard these prisoners. And uh, the sad part of it was this, that we had, we, we, we remained in Czechoslovakia, guarding these Germans for about a month. And then we had to turn them over to the Russians. Yeah which was really quite sad because you could see it in the faces of all those Germans. They knew what the hell was, 
what was awaiting them. And that was, and transferring them to the Russians was even a graver, much tenser situation than, than, than any actual combat would have been, because we just really didn't know what these Germans would have done. But in any case, the transfer went off without any hitches, and then we went back to Germany for occupation duty. So how long were you there with the occupation? Oh, probably for another, about another year and a half. And what did you end up doing? Did you end up doing, uh, you say you, you eventually got into photography and uh, some journalism? Well, I was doing it on my own. I mean, this was had nothing to do with, uh, with the army. Mm -hmm. Occupation duty was boring, monotonous. A lot of drilling, but by that time I had, I, uh, I was a technical sergeant, which was five stripes. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, uh, I mean, I didn't have to put up with as much routine as the private stitch, for example. You see, I had a great deal of freedom. Uh, I did uh, quite a bit of administrative work. I also did an awful lot of uh, uh, drill work with the troops. Uh, I was a platoon sergeant at the tender age of 19. <laughs> it was really funny because I had men under me who were 30, 40. And the old adage in the army is if you've got problems, you go see your sergeant. I recall one poor fellow who was having trouble with his wife back in the States, and he came to me to <laughs> solve his problems. <laughs> what the hell did I know about marital relations at 19? You know, what did I know? Uh. So, uh, I mean, uh, my response was, go see the chaplain. I didn't know what that, <laughs> I can't do anything for you. But in any case, uh... <coughs> so did you, did you get back in doing photography with some of the spare time you had? Or did I you did. pick up a, a Leica in the general occupation? Uh, Leica? No, no, I didn't have a Leica. I think I had an Argus. Uh-huh. An Argus C3, I believe it was. Yeah, I know the camera. In fact, I uh, either I brought it with me, like, or I wanted a crowd game or something. Hmm. Uh, I can't remember now what it was, but I had that. Mm -hmm. My big problem was to try to find film, ah. <laughs> and to find someone to process it. You see, because we were located in a, we were just a. Uh, a battalion that meant, uh, which was what, six companies. Uh, it was only about uh, maybe 150, 200 men. You didn't have a kind of headquarters that would have had those facilities, in other Well, words. yeah, but they were in Munich. Yeah. And we were down in, uh, uh, we were in Landshut. Uh, so we didn't have access to that. We didn't have that kind of a PX, for example. So I had to depend on. Uh, uh, on the German druggist or whatever the equivalent of a drug of a photo processing mm -hmm. office was at the time, and uh, and of course I had to get film too, and I got whatever German film was available. I have some of those negatives home somewhere. Thirty-five uh, millimeter. Yeah. Uh, very dense. I didn't have a light meter. Uh, I mean, I knew nothing about that. I, I didn't know anything about the technical thing. Mm -hmm. Just, Just load and shoot. Yeah. Know, and, and like George says, you know, you push the button, we do the rest. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, no, but I did detect, well, it was at that time that I got involved with cartoons for the battalion paper, uh, writing for the battalion paper. And uh, in fact, I was editor of the bad battalion paper for a while. And then in uh, in summer of '46, I believe, I came home. The summer of '46. Yeah. yeah. You made a remark uh, four years ago when we talked about taking a copy of uh, the Odyssey. Uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, yeah. Both. The, the yeah. And uh, I think you compared that to the, your experience, in a sense, or... Yeah, it, uh, it, those are really the only two books I traveled with. And whatever paperback I could pick up here and there. 
But those things were always in my duffel bag. And, but did you have this feeling of it as a sort of adventure, as a, um, I mean, as distinct from a kind of foreboding, or maybe in, along with, uh, you know, when you went in first, was it, was it, uh, I guess what I'm saying is, was it another, in a sense, step away from the Polish community and really into the world for you? Did you feel that way? Oh no! By that time, I felt I was convinced that I was already in the world. Uh -huh. You know that uh, that. Uh, Adolescent attitude that I know it all. Yeah. You see, mm -hmm. and it seemed very logical to have the Iliad and the Odyssey. Why not? Mm -hmm. You know, two two respectable books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literary classics went. So uh, no, no. By that time, there was no question in my mind, because by that time I had a very good command of the language. I was fortunate in the sense that I had. Uh, uh, this cool boyfriend. Name is Valerjan Bagosian. Would you Would you like to try and spell that for me? What's I'll right. never. His first name is Valerjan. V A R U J A N. His last name is Bagosian. B O G H O S I A N. 